I want you to imagine Halloween this year. You'll wake up to beautiful leaves and maybe find some candy left on your desk. But by the end of the day, I'll guess, you'll start to hear some news stories of protests outside of the Supreme Court. You see, this Halloween, the High Court has decided to take on one of its most controversial cases yet, affirmative action. After decades of affirmative action playing a crucial role in strategies to increase diversity in universities, the topic will reach the Supreme Court again this month. This court has already made clear its willingness to overturn past cases as it seems necessary, and as the court prepares to hear cases against Harvard and the University of North Carolina, experts wonder if this case could mean the end to affirmative action, leaving us with the crucial question, what would one mean for diversity in higher education institutions? Hello and welcome to this Harvard Political Review podcast. My name is Gabriella Folks, and today we're delving into the coming Supreme Court cases on affirmative action what it's meant in the past, and what it may look like in the very near future. With the hearing rapidly approaching, I want to discuss three aspects of the case. Firstly, what legal decisions have brought us to where we are today? Secondly, we'll hear from several legal experts on their opinions on the constitutionality of affirmative action. And lastly, we'll take a look at the likeliness of an overruling and what that would mean. So, Beyond vague ideas that it bolsters diversity, what exactly does affirmative action do? Or rather, what has the Supreme Court let it do, and where has it drawn the line? You see, affirmative action has been a hot topic in the court before. In fact, affirmative action has already made it to the Supreme Court six times. The first time, the case was considered moot because by the time the case actually reached a hearing, the involved student was about to graduate. So we'll focus on the second case. First case on today's calendar is number 76811, Regents of the University of California against Baki. Regents of the University of California v. Baki, which was decided in 1978. Mr. Cox, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. Alan Baki was a white 32-year-old NASA engineer and former Marine who decided to apply to med school in the 1970s. He completed his required classes by night and eagerly submitted his application to the medical school at the University of California, Davis. Unfortunately, he was rejected. But, undeterred, he applied again the following year and was rejected again. Had Baki given up then, he may have lived on as an unremarkable reject, but Baki was not one to give up this easily. Instead, he sued, and by 1978, he had a Supreme Court case named after him. You see, Baki believed his rejection was unfair and even unconstitutional. His admission score was well above the average admitted students, and there were even open slots when he applied. However, as a white applicant, Baki believed his rejections resulted from the school system reserving 16 out of 100 spots for minority students. He also believed that this quota system violated the Equal Protection Clause and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That said, Baki applied to and was rejected from 11 medical schools, and tens of students with higher scores than him were rejected from or put on an alternate list for the Davis Medical School that same year. Furthermore, Baki was over 30 years old at the time of his applications, and the associate dean for student affairs at the medical school explicitly wrote in a letter to Baki that his age would be a factor, quote, seriously considered for one of the limited number of places in the entering class, end quote. But, as is often true with Supreme Court cases, the individual seems to matter much less than the overall controversy on which the court wishes to rule. In a narrowly split ruling, the court landed on a decision that attempted to satiate Baki and other white applicants while protecting minority students. It decided racial quotas violated the Civil Rights Act, and Baki was admitted. 
But crucially, the court upheld a right to consider race during the admissions process. More broadly, in this landmark case, the court protected a vague form of affirmative action that we continue to see the legacies of today. To put it short, this case was incredibly controversial going in and incredibly controversial coming out. For opponents of affirmative action, it was a chance to end what they saw as reverse discrimination, while minority and other students gathered in protest of the case in its aftermath. Just what's behind the demonstration here? Well, what's happening is that uh, the faculty will be voting this week on a new admissions program, which is uh, in the wake of Baki. Okay, and we feel that the program meets uh, very few of our needs and very few of the needs of disadvantaged minority, underrepresented minority communities. The administration will meet on Friday to discuss the new admissions program. The protesters will be right here until then. And they'll be here a lot longer if the decision goes against them. At UCLA, this is Mike Botula reporting. For so why did the Supreme Court ruling do so little to alleviate this controversy? Well, the Supreme Court decided to apply a test called strict scrutiny. This logic must be considered for any law or program that infringes on a fundamental right or, as is in this case, depends on something called a suspect classification, which includes race, nationality, religion, etc. Now, obviously, it's a pretty big deal to impede on a fundamental right or to classify people by something like race, so passing strict scrutiny is incredibly difficult and involves passing three subtests. First, the law or program needs a really good reason. Second, it must use narrowly tailored means. And last, it should use the least restrictive means possible to achieve that goal. And according to Justice Lewis Powell, in his opinion announcement of Baki, In my view, the only state interest that fairly may be viewed as compelling on this record is the interest of a university in a diverse student body. This interest, encompassed within the concept of academic freedom, is a special concern of the First Amendment. But there has been no showing in this case that the Davis special program is necessary to achieve educational diversity. In other words, diversity is a strong enough interest in affirmative action, but Davis's special program, which is what they call the quota system, doesn't pass strict scrutiny because, according to the High Court, there were other ways to pursue diversity. In this manner, the Supreme Court left the door open for certain programs to increase diversity in universities, but deemed the quota system unconstitutional. And the case provided very little clarity beyond that. Some schools read the opinion as a demand for restructuring their affirmative action programs, while others saw it as an endorsement for their programs. But in his opinion, Justice Powell did a lot more than prohibit quotas in affirmative action. California v. Baki had a tremendous impact on the way we interpret the Constitution and apply it to this day. I often say that I was in the Supreme Court on the day that the Baki decision was announced. And I remember leaving the Supreme Court devastated because for black people, Baki was a loss. 
That's Professor Theodore M. Shaw, the Julius L. Chambers Distinguished Professor of Law and the Director of the UNC Center for Civil Rights at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. For context, during an interview with the HPR, Professor Shaw delved into the history of the 14th Amendment and its original intention. He specifically pointed to the 39th Congress, which adopted the 14th Amendment and pursued other programs which deliberately focused on helping African Americans recently freed from slavery become full citizens of the United States, including, for example, the Freedmen's Bureau, hospitals, schools. Ultimately, Shaw asked the question, How could the 39th Congress have adopted the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause and at the same time found that the Equal Protection Clause was inconsistent with all of those race-conscious measures intended to help black people take their place uh, as full citizens in the aftermath of slavery. Why would the framers of the 14th immediately pass a bunch of race-conscious policies if they believed the 14th made considering race unconstitutional? Professor Shaw also spoke of Powell lifting up the goal of diversity as opposed to the goal of lifting up affirmative action. This distinction may be unfamiliar to many of you, as it was for me, so let's take a listen back into what Shaw had to say. It was a loss because the court refused to distinguish between those two types of efforts, exclusion, inclusion, and applying the 14th Amendment. It was a loss because the court ignored explicitly the arguments about the original intent of the 14th Amendment and the fact that the 14th Amendment was intended to assist African Americans couldn't have been inconsistent with the uh, deliberate efforts to to help African Americans in the aftermath of of slavery. It was a loss because the court, Justice Powell's opinion, along with the other four conservative justices, said that. Institutions could not try to take actions uh, that were race conscious to remedy uh, racial inequality in society that they themselves did not cause. Indeed, in his announcement of the court's judgment in 1978, Powell specifically stated, Discrimination by society at large with no determined effects is not sufficient to justify petitioner's racial classification. Now, as Shaw was saying... So the University of California at Davis Medical School, which uh, had this affirmative action program and admissions, could not operate a race-conscious program because it did not have a history, it was a fairly new institution, of discriminating against African-Americans and uh, Latinx people and other people of color. It was a loss because at the end of the day, even though I don't believe Justice Powell intended this, I hope he didn't, but it really doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it ended up causing the marginalization of black and brown people in subsequent cases involving questions or presenting questions of whether racial discrimination and so-called reverse discrimination place Uh, cases was in play. And that happened because Justice Powell lifted up this new rationale, the diversity rationale. The 14th Amendment uh, up until that time was protecting African-Americans, black and brown people. 
and their civil rights uh, and their constitutional rights. The diversity rationale that Justice Powell came up with didn't belong to black and brown people. It belonged to institutions of higher education, colleges and universities, and their right to decide who was going to be enrolled. That was the First Amendment right that belonged to the institutions. That became the subsequent justification for what many people now continue to think about affirmative action, but it's a completely different rationale, uh, which is uh, diversity that may overlap with the goals of affirmative action, but is not quite the same thing. The impact has been the marginalization and the exclusion subsequently in these cases uh, in which conservatives have challenged diversity efforts of black and brown voices, if that makes sense. And that is unfortunate. Look, Powell and Bakke snatched victory from the jaws of defeat as far as I and others were concerned. Yes, black and brown people, people of color, benefited from the diversity rationale, but as a side effect of diversity, uh, so to speak, not because their interests were the primary interests uh, being protected. It's the colleges and the universities. But now even that is under attack by conservatives. And that attack is now manifested in the Harvard case. First time a private institution has reached the Supreme Court with respect to these issues and the UNC case. Since Bakke, as affirmative action has returned to the court four more times, the Supreme Court has provided limited amounts of clarification as to what is permissible under the program. I won't go into tremendous detail, but through cases like Grutter, Gatz, and Fisher, the High Court upheld and modified Bakke, establishing, for example, that a point system that specifically gives a point boost to underrepresented minority students doesn't pass strict scrutiny, while other programs that consider race for a certain portion of its class do. And so that leads us to the coming Supreme Court hearings regarding the admissions policies of Harvard and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, America's oldest private and public universities. Both cases were brought to the Supreme Court by an organization called the Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, which was founded by the same man behind the Fisher case against affirmative action in 2016, Edward Blum. SFFA claims that Harvard is discriminating against Asian American applicants by awarding them poor personality scores, which the university denies. For UNC, SFFA claims that the university discriminates against both Asian American and white students. While originally these two cases were to be argued together, in July the court announced it would rule each case separately. And while the court stated that Katanji John Braxton was not a consideration for this decision, by separating these two cases, she'll now be able to rule on the UNC case as she recused herself from the Harvard case. Since the court announced its decision to hear these affirmative action cases, hundreds of top American corporations, universities, lawmakers, military officers, professors, economists, and many others showed their support for one side or the other through more than 100 amicus briefs. Amicus briefs are petitions of a party that's not directly part of the case, but believes that it still has a strong interest in the outcome. It's essentially trying to convince the court to rule one way or another. And the Pacific Legal Fund, or PLF, was one such group that filed an amicus brief in March of 2021 in support of SFFA. 
The primary author of this brief was a senior attorney named Wen Fa, with whom I had the opportunity to speak. The Supreme Court in the Grutter decision. That was one of the earlier affirmative action cases that I mentioned. It was a case involving the University of Michigan Law School. The court actually endorsed a compelling interest in racial diversity, in diversity, in a diverse student body at the at higher education. And the court endorsed the use of racial preferences for the purposes of achieving a diverse student body. And that's where I think the Supreme Court got it wrong. In Gruder, I don't think, you know, when you talk about diversity, you can think about many things, but I don't think, regardless of how the university or any particular university might define it, I don't think diversity is an interest that's sufficient to justify in the university's use of racial preferences. So that's why I think the Students for Fair Admissions is, is asking the court to overrule its previous decision in Gruder. And that's one of the reasons why we supported the students in, in, uh, with a friend of the court brief in both those cases. And beyond his reasoning for believing that affirmative action does not pass the strict scrutiny test, Fa further elaborated on some of the effects of race-conscious admissions. I think universities should be using race you know, as a plus factor for some students, minus factor for other students. And I think that's really had harmful effects at universities, including Harvard, where I believe the plaintiff cited Princeton Review articles telling Asian American applicants who wanted to get into Harvard not to say that they want to major in math or sciences or become a doctor because, you know, doing so would put them in a box as a typical Asian applicant and decrease their chances of getting admitted. On the other hand, in their brief filed with the court on July 25th of this year, the respondent, namely the president and fellows of Harvard College, argued that the, quote, benefits of student body diversity are compelling government interest, end quote, that passes strict scrutiny. They continue to elaborate on the need for racial diversity in schools, citing education as playing an important role in the future leadership of our country and emphasizing the power a diverse student body has in breaking down stereotypes. A week later, the United States filed an amicus brief in support of the respondent, stating its interest in a diverse federal workforce. As I was just beginning work on this podcast, I reached out to SFFA for comment. Surprisingly, I received a reply from Blum, remember the president of SFFA, referring me to two law professors. In the end, I spoke with John Yu, the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley, whom in an email Blum referred to as, quote, one of the most capable legal minds in the nation, end quote. Before we hear from you, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that you is considered extremely controversial and was even the focus of protests during Say No to Torture Week on UC Berkeley's campus in 2010, which called for his arrest. In particular, you is widely criticized for his authorship of the torture memos while Deputy Assistant General of the United States under Bush. Through a series of memos, you provided legal arguments to exclude Afghanistan war detainees from the Geneva Conventions, subjecting them to torture techniques, including waterboarding and sleep deprivation. Now, to transition back to affirmative action, through various interviews and articles, you has expressed a belief that affirmative action is not only poor policy, but is also unconstitutional. First thing to understand is that uh, under the Supreme Court's current interpretation of the Constitution, affirmative action by which you mean the use of race in government decisions is allowed in only two circumstances now. Uh, one, which seems obvious, is to remedy past discrimination uh, as suffered by specific individuals, not discrimination from 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, and the only other area 
where the Supreme Court allows affirmative action is in college and university admissions. This is a huge aberration, it seems to me. So think about it. You can't use race in wartime. You can't use race in policing. You can't use race in prisons. You can't use race in any area of government policy or decisions, according to the Supreme Court, except in this one area, college admissions, which seems to have much less at stake, in, it seems to me, than some important things like wartime, national security, right, domestic violence, and uh, trying to restore peace. And so, so I find that that makes no sense to me. Uh, but that's the Supreme Court's decision so far. I expect that when the court confronts uh, the Harvard and University of North Carolina affirmative action programs, uh, this upcoming Supreme Court term starting in October, it's going to uh, remove that anomaly and just restore the law, I think, to uh, what the Constitution requires it to be, is just that the government cannot use race, you know, cannot use skin color at all. When it makes decisions other again, other than when the state has in the past discriminated against someone on the basis of race, using race to remedy and make up for that past discrimination. You is far from alone in believing that the court will overturn nearly 45 years of precedent in affirmative action this fall. And looking at the current justices in the Supreme Court, one can pretty easily see why. Firstly, in the Fisher Supreme Court case in 2016, the court ruled in favor of the University of Texas's race-conscious admissions program by a 4-3 vote. Justice Sotomayor is the only remaining justice on the court who voted in favor of the University of Texas, while all three dissenters of that case continue to serve. Secondly, few can deny the severity with which the Supreme Court nominations over the past six years have affected rulings. I think it's beyond doubt that this is the most conservative Supreme Court that anyone alive now in this country has seen. And they're just beginning. This is exactly the court that conservatives have wanted for decades. And among the cases, the precedents at the top of their hit list were Roe versus Wade and Baki slash Gruda and uh, the two Fisher cases also uh, among the most important cases for them in terms of their hit list. What will this mean for North Carolina? Well, there's, uh, let me say, in spite of everything I just said, that I hope and I pray that this Supreme Court does not overturn the long chain of precedent that allows colleges and universities to consciously consider uh, diversity, including racial diversity, as was found by Justice Powell's opinion in Bakke and as was reaffirmed by the Supreme Court in the Gruder case and has been reaffirmed at least twice, but I think probably three times since then. That's a lot of of precedent, but it appears that this Supreme Court is willing to overturn precedent. Let me strike the word appears. 
this Supreme Court is willing to overturn precedent. So there's great cause for concern for those of us who want to keep the doors open to black and brown students in significant numbers at selective institutions of higher education. So I think that this uh, case, you know, may uh, have the potential, or I guess the Harvard and UNC cases, they have the potential to mark the end of express racial preferences in college admissions. Uh, you know, they may stop universities from overtly discriminating on the basis of race. I don't think that they will necessarily stop uh, universities from covertly discriminating on the basis of race. A lot of universities have, you know, frankly said that they, they believe that the interest in pursuing some form of racial diversity as a, a very important goal to them. Um, you know, I disagree with that, but, um, but, you know, the, a lot of universities, I do think, are, uh, uh, bent on pursuing, you know, their conception of racial diversity. I think on race, if you look at the way they would think about the use of race, given their methods for interpreting and enforcing the Constitution in other areas. I have a hard time seeing the, these six uh, justices who've, who have voted against the use of race consistently in other areas, uh, allowing its continued use when it comes to university admissions. With the likely overturning of affirmative action cases looming ahead, many universities stress over its effects on racial diversity in their schools. Both sides of the debate on affirmative action accept that outlawing affirmative action has and will have drastic effects on the racial diversity of schools. Currently, eight states already outlaw affirmative action, including California, in 1996. And in that first year after they banned affirmative action in California, the number of black students newly enrolling at Berkeley dropped by nearly 50%. In 2019, Harvard and the SFFA both hired economists to project how the racial diversity of the class of 2019 at Harvard would have changed without race-conscious admissions. The studies landed on similar results. Enrollment numbers for black students would decrease by more than half. For Latinx students, it would decrease by more than a third. And for Asian American students, it would increase by more than 30%. Many universities, therefore, seek ways to increase diversity without specifically considering individual applicants' race through recruiting efforts and adjustments to admissions criteria. One such idea centers around decreasing schools' dependence on standardized testing, a measure that largely reflects prior quality of education and educational resources. Professor Yu noticed this trend shortly after Proposition 2009 in California, which banned affirmative action, and believes that such a path is detrimental to universities. The thing that bothers me and worries me about the post-209 world here would be that administrators' desire, and probably a lot of faculty's desire, to still engage in racial balancing. And so in order to do that, they would like to get rid of things like the SATs, or they would like to uh, downplay the importance of GPAs, and they want to increase things like life experiences or personality scores, as we saw with Harvard, because that increases the uh, discretion in a way that can't be reviewed by government. Uh, by courts, it increases the discretion of these admissions officers who I think think of themselves as some kind of social engineers who are trying to design the perfect little society. Uh, and I, again, it's the thing I question is like, where, what gives them the uh, 
almost intellectual arrogance to think that they can design a society and in all of its right on all of our country's diversity, actually just natural diversity. Why should we think college administrators or school administrators should have this awesome power to just sit there and design uh, classes to advance their vision of social justice or perfect of perfection? However, others disagree with him. I spoke with Jose Sanchez, an associate professor of political science and chair of urban studies at Long Island University, Brooklyn, and chair of the National Institute for Latino Policy. Sanchez earned admissions to the Columbia class of 73 among a record number of Latinx admittees. There, as Sanchez put it, he became politically energized and became involved in making higher education institutions such as Columbia more accessible. One issue he sees with college admissions policies is an overemphasis on standardized testing over other characteristics. And frankly, I think that very often what happens is that um, the institutions don't do a good enough job of setting up mechanisms for evaluating students to see if they have that kind of grit. There are ways you can get at that. You know, you can ask in an interview, ask students questions about what was the biggest failure you had in high school and how did you respond to that and what was the outcome of that. By relying simply on the SAT scores, you don't get at this other aspect of what makes success possible. Many also consider the end of affirmative action as an opportunity, for better or for worse, to switch focus towards income-level diversity as opposed to strictly racial diversity in schools. The Constitution itself bars the use of race. It doesn't bar the use of socioeconomic status. And in fact, a lot of the things the government does is designed to give a helping hand to people who are at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. There's no constitutional problem with that. When you read the Supreme Court's cases about affirmative action and they say, well, we'll let administrators use race because what we want to have is diversity of opinion and thought in higher education. I think that's insulting to racial minorities because it assumes that if you say, if I'm Asian, I have a certain point of view that I would introduce uh, in a discussion. What if I have the same views as white people or Hispanic people? Why would race correlate at all with people's uh, intellectual diversity? But I do think that you're much more likely to get that with different socioeconomic classes, right? That uh, people who are poor might have very well different views than people who are rich. Still others, including Fa, believe we need to focus more on a child's early education. Um, I do think that there could be done to increase opportunities for all individuals, regardless of race. And I think a lot of that has to be done uh, not at the college, at the university level, but at the K through 12 or even the pre-K level. Ultimately, the coming hearings and rulings on affirmative action will have drastic consequences on the manner in which the country addresses race and diversity. This summer, the current justices marked a firm new path for the Supreme Court, and this season could see many more changes to come. Now, as we reach the end of this podcast, I have a small ask of you. When the hearing takes place this month, I want you to consider strict scrutiny. The 14th's original intent, what it means for racial diversity to be the goal of universities, whose futures are at stake, and what universities plan to do next. As you listen, really think, what does each argument and decision mean for the direction of the Supreme Court? And what does it mean for the opportunities of those entering higher education institutions?